There's no doubt about it, Bill Daggett is a deep thinker and is an expert in pushing us to be the same. He and Jeff lean in on the topic of pursuing a new narrative and model in education to serve students in the future. Bill breaks down elements of our current challenges and fortunately provides some advice on how we can move forward. As one behind the camera, I could tell that Jeff and Bill could have talked for hours if we had let them. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. I'm Jeff Rose, and like I say every week, um, I buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be fun. In fact, I, I'm I'm so ridiculously fortunate that I have the opportunity to discuss and interview people that I have followed and read from and about for sometimes years and years, as well as meet some really really new people, but. The goal of bringing very kind of pragmatic, focused, inspirational content to leaders in this way is uh, one of the things that we do in the Leadership Circle, and today will be no different. In fact, I'm going to be inviting here in any second uh, Bill Daggett to the screen, and um, Bill, you know, he's one of these people that I've been following. In fact, when I talked with him recently, I said, Bill, I know you way better than you know me because you don't know me, but I know you at least well enough to have have followed you and been inspired by you. And since I have announced that we will be talking to Bill Daggett in the leader chat, many of our members, and by the way, our members watch this live. Some people listen to the the audio podcast uh, in a couple of weeks when we post it. they have said, oh my goodness, I saw Bill uh, during this year, or I once heard Bill say this, and it changed my life and perspective relative to how I look at education, the future of education, etc. So um, like I said, this is going to be a blast. So um, quick bio, Bill is the founder of both the Successful Practices Network and the International Center for Leadership and Education. He is recognized worldwide for his proven ability to move pre-K-12 education systems towards more rigorous and relevant skills and knowledge for all students. For 30 years, he has crisscrossed our nation, and still is, by the way, as well as the industrialized world to lead school reform efforts to effectively prepare students for their future. While an avid supporter of public education, he also challenges us to be more focused on children's future than maintaining the schools of our youth. Dr. Daggett began his career as a teacher, local administrator, and then director of the New York State of Education Department, he is the creator of the Rigor Relevance Framework, which he recently became, has become the cornerstone of much of the nation's school reform efforts. I could go on, but instead of uh, doing that, let me just invite Bill to the screen. Bill, thank you so much for being here with us today. This is going to be great. Thanks, Jeff. I look forward to the discussion. So, um, you know, there's so many, there are a variety of things that I could kind of tick off if somebody said to me who doesn't know you. So what is, what, is, what is Bill known for? What, what is his expertise? I would come up with a list, right, of some things that I know you for. What do, what do you think you're known for? I mean, if people were to say like, oh, I, 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 know, I know Daggett stuff, what do you think that they would say? Um, I think, Jeff, that I try to keep my eye on what's around the corner. You know, everybody talks about best, best practices. I, I try to focus on next best practices. Because our kids are changing, the world we're going to prepare our kids for is fundamentally changing. 
advancing technologies are overwhelming us. That the skills, the knowledge, the attributes that our 20th century districts were really focused on and our tests drove us to even deeper are not necessarily the skills, knowledges, and attributes that they need once they leave school. And so keeping my eye on what's around the corner and preparing kids for the world beyond school, not simply the, the next grade, the next test, the next level of education. Well, that that's that's one of the major things I would say too is that, you know, preparing kids, as you said, for their future, not our past. But I always feel like you push us to be maybe visionaries that we're struggling to be. Right, a visionary is someone can see the potential in something that others can't see. Um, I've always found that as I almost like a futurist, you are pushing us to think about education in new ways because it's so easy sometimes for us to fall back to what we know based upon the past, but also based upon the present, as you described, how do we presently focus, but you totally push us towards the future. And I read your bio, but I probably missed some things. What, what did I miss? And maybe just update us on how you're doing, because I know you're still cranking away. And I think you told me traveling maybe even more than you would have expected or sometimes even want to. Yeah. I, over the last uh, 18 months, I've spent a lot of time. Uh, I chaired a national commission called Learning 2025, AASA, American Association of School Superintendents, in the summer and early fall of 2020. And, and think back, Jeff, that's pandemic around five, six months. Everybody thought this thing's got to be almost over. They brought together a national commission, and they brought together 12 of the nation's most well-known, respected superintendents. Uh, five leaders from the technology field, five leaders from the educational foundation world, and some of the nation's most well-known and respected thought leaders. I, I had the privilege of co-chairing that national commission. And we met every other week for several months and came up with a series of bold recommendations. And they're pretty bold about where schools should be by 2025. But the commission said, this is going to be like every other national report. It's going to go on the shelf unless we can drive it actually into school districts. And so last school year, we began with 120 districts. This school year, we've expanded it to 280 districts that uh, are the AASA National Demonstration Districts that are truly trying to implement these more true, bold changes in American education. And, uh, successful practices network that I head up with Ray McNulty. Um, we're, we're providing the technical support and leadership and facilitation uh, of those best practices to those schools and then across the country. So that's where I'm spending most of my time recently. So let's let's dive into that a little bit. So this is kind of the looking towards the future, this post-COVID world that we're either dreaming about or trying to navigate, um, which is pretty uh, complex and clunky at times. What, as you have been spending uh, a lot of focused energy on that topic, um, what would you say to leaders right now, specific to what they could or maybe should expect in the future, maybe aligned to the very work you just described? Uh, first thing is culture Trump strategy. And, and Jeff, you can't change schools faster than the rate of readiness and trust. 
And right now, our teachers, our administrators, they're physically and emotionally exhausted after the last two years. So in some ways, while it's more important to change schools now than ever, uh, the systems just aren't there. Mm -hmm. And so what you're finding is first you have to stabilize the system, but then help create with your staff, your board, your community, a vision of what it could be in 2025 and make that change an evolutionary process, not a revolutionary process. Mm -hmm. Revolutions get killed. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, don't try to do too much too fast, but have really high, high impact. And as you begin, begin to do that, what we're finding, Jeff, is people quickly understand we have a true instructional design problem. We're designed for the 20th century. We're designed for a time that has fundamentally passed us. And, and we can talk about, if you want to, some of those changes we're seeing in the instructional design. But what it quickly leads to is a more emotional debate. We have a workforce design problem. So this is what we talked about uh, last week when we were discussing this. I, I, want, I want to go down this road a little bit. So you say instructional design problem. Uh, aligned to and maybe coupled with, uh, you know, this, this workforce design problem. Um, if if I say instructional design problem, it may mean one thing to somebody and something completely different to another. So help us understand how you uh, define that, but even more importantly, how you couple the instructional design problem with the workforce problem, because the workforce problem is the thing that truly is beating people up over the head with right now. And of course, worried for the future. My concern is I know they're just trying to fill seats as they should, but we need to start thinking about this differently. So this is why, this is why I'm, one of the reasons I'm so excited for this discussion. So help us understand that. Yeah, um, when you think about a, an instructional design, and an instructional design issue has to be looked at first. Uh, we worked with McKenzie and company. McKenzie, not for us, but simultaneously as we were doing our work, did this huge national study of 18,000 companies, small, medium, and large, and tried to identify what are the skills, knowledge, and attributes the workforce will need in the 21st century. Uh, and what we found is they were different than what we're necessarily teaching in our schools. Uh, Jeff, our schools are organized to teach content. And to a great extent, we teach that content in isolation. A third period science teacher has no clue what the kids learned in second period social studies or what will happen in fourth period English language arts. Uh, also, in our schools, we basically teach, test, lose information. Jeff asked all the superintendents, if they had to take 11th or 12th grade math and science test right now, <laughs> how do they think they would do? Yeah, not well. Yeah, not well. And, and in the world outside of school, increasingly, Jeff, they don't care what you took. They care what can you do with what you took. And they want the ability to apply uh, the skills, knowledges, attributes to solve real world, unexpected problems and situations. This is a little overly simplistic, but with the advancing technologies that we may want to just touch on, 
if you can write an algorithm for any task, the technology is going to do it. Not only in the workplace, in our personal lives. Uh, what you can't write an algorithm for are the skills, knowledges, and attributes our kids need the most, which is high-level, integrated, uh, applied academics, but it's also self-leadership skills and interpersonal skills. But from an instructional design, you know, in, in the 80s and the 90s, we began to talk about those things and we tried to create courses and just add another layer to the cake. That won't work. It's a matter of remixing the batter. And, and you begin to get heavily into project-based activities directly tied back to the academic standards um, that are going to be tested in your state. You, you find that uh, personalized learning becomes really, really important. Uh, today's kids are different. You know, they're, they're not only an extension of their technology, they're not getting driver's licenses, they're not dating, uh, they're not getting part-time jobs. Uh, their living in communities have fundamentally changed. For example, uh, and I mentioned this next one, that not because of the religious knowledge you gain, but of those interpersonal skills and self-leadership skills. Think about this. In, in the United States, in the year 2000, 71% of Americans said they identified on a regular basis with some religious institution. That is now 47%. 71 to 47 yeah, since the year 2000. That, that data just came out last week. Yeah, it's extreme. Yeah, number of kids living in single-parent homes has more than doubled since 2020. And so what happens is these kids are coming without some foundational skills that they learned in other places. And so we see, for example, an explosion in mental health-related issues. We've, we find attendance issues. We find all kinds of other issues. And Jeff, you've been a superintendent. Well, we're about academic institution, uh, academic learning. If we don't address these other issues, we can't get to the academics. Well, in fact, I used to uh, say this as to try to make a point and maybe even complain or vent that so often it feels like in school we are unintentionally or intentionally preparing kids to be good in school. And that should not be the focus. Right, we're trying, we should be trying to focus on preparing kids for when they get out of school, which is what you're describing is a skill set um, and some attributes that we have not infused into our day-to-day -day system. So there's a couple of topics we need to explore. The first is workforce, and then we're going to get into assessments. But let's start with workforce then. If um, what you're saying is true, and by the way, you had me at hello, but just for fun, if that is true in terms of we need, we have this instructional design problem, and it should shift to these skills that we can't write an algorithm for, how is it that we can start to think about our teachers and our teacher staff relative to their skill set, their past practice, but also shortages? I mean, how... How do we think about this as educators as opposed to just becoming overwhelmed and, and, and give up as leaders? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeff, because our, our teachers are working unbelievably hard. Yes. But here's the reality. Most educators, when we were kids, liked school. <laughs> so we went to college to major in school so that when we graduated from college, we could return to school to do to others what had been done to us. 
<laughs> and, and who do we interact with all day long? People with that same mindset. And so we almost have this uh, paradigm in our head. Now, uh, let me give you an example, Jeff, uh, of how hard it is to change that paradigm. If I say, uh, think about Roman numeral IX, and Jeff, make that with adding only one more line, make it into a six. IX, Roman yeah. numeral, and make that into a six. One more line, make it a six. I don't have the answer yet. Yeah. So I, I mean, I hold Everybody listening hasn't got the answer. Right. Let, let me give you one. Okay. Put an S in front of IX. An S. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now yeah. I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why did I give you that simple? <laughs> uh, be, because when I, as soon as I said Roman numeral, I got you into a paradigm, a silo, if you will, of thinking. What we've got to do is help teachers and administrators see other ways this can be done. And, and that's why this national commission I head up became so important. We're teasing out the best examples of how do you do it differently. And then uh, and because I think people have got to see it to say, oh, wait, yeah, that makes sense. And so what we're doing is trying to find these most successful innovative practices and then simply we play traffic cop and share them across the country through a variety of ways we're going to have a national summit in june with aasa just to show the greatest examples and you begin to see some little things changing and then you see some substantive change um, and, and what we find is it requires first a culture that says we need to do something different then a culture is saying we can, but what the heck does it look like? And our advice is, Jeff, uh, going to be controversial what I say next, but you can break staff into thirds. A third of the staff, uh, if they heard me for 10 minutes to say, yeah, right on, let me try, show me. Mm -hmm. That's a yes to every new idea. I call them the lunatic fringe. They're, they're excited about everything. Mm -hmm. Then you got another third that say, well, wait a minute, who's going to pay for it? Or where, who's going to train us? Where is the technology? How does it relate to the state test? They are not negative people. They are realists. Yeah. But then you got another third that say, over my dead body, will you mess up my 2010 laminated lesson plan? So I say to superintendents, to principals, while I want change quickly, don't mess with the bottom third. You can't take on that many battles. Yeah. Change your professional development model from trying to provide some basic training to everybody on a given day to investing your limited money in your top one third and tie your top one third to the top one third in other districts who are trying innovative practices. Yeah. They'll make it work and the middle one third will watch. And when it works, the middle third will come aboard. That's what we're finding. But that takes, Jeff, a couple years. We think real rev uh, evolution in the system takes probably four to five years. But what you then got are two thirds of the staff taking on that bottom third, rather than a few administrators going to battle. And, and that's the change model we're seeing.
if if we think into the future and uh, if if the data that is being discussed nationally and as we're seeing kind of transpire in front of us with our shortages, um, one day we may be faced with two thirds. I mean, we we may be missing a huge portion of the workforce. Do you think that there is uh, potential at looking some of the at some of the um, innovation designs that you're that, that you're talking about related to those two thirds? Maybe doing some things differently so that we're not only meeting the needs of students relative to preparing them for the world of work, but we're also um, really focusing on the, the talent of those two thirds um, in a different way. Sure, sure I do. Uh, our people can come up, our teachers, our administrators can come up with a solution if we free them to do it. Mm -hmm. But I do think, Jeff, you, you have to give them some some insight of what could it be like, not, not the directed that what it has to be like. And, and let me give you the example. That, that I shared with you recently. What we're beginning to see, and this gets into this whole issue of workforce design. Okay. If you've had a physical sometime in the last year, uh, your doctor probably spent more time looking at the computer and peppering you with questions than physically examining you. Um, and why is that? Well, because sometime in that too different past, distant past, your doctor or somebody on their staff, she or he asks you a ton of questions about your own medical background, your own history, your own lifestyle issues, and they created a data system. Every one of us is in one of four data management systems, medical management systems, because every hospital, every doctor in the country is in them. And they have anywhere from 66 million to 220 million people in them. And what they do is they, they tag you with all that information about your own history, your personal history, your family history, your life habits. They tag you to other people who have very similar backgrounds to you. And they monitor what's happening to them medically. They're monitoring that when they do have a medical problem, what pharmaceutical work, what pharmaceutical does not. And so when your doctor has your annual physical, they turn on the information system and they're tracking, what should I be looking for relative to Jeff? What are his potential problems? What would be the medication for him? They're using the information system to manage your health rather than simply physically examining you. Then if you get really sick um, and you go to the doctor, you probably don't see your doctor. You see a PA. Uh, you, you, you see a nurse assistant. You see someone else. Sure. And if you're really sick, they send you to a specialist. The role of your family doctor changed forever, Jeff, from providing medical care to managing your medical care. Yeah. It, Changed the profession from in the year 2000. I have a daughter and son-in-law in the medical field. One in four people in the year 2000 in the medical field were MDs. It's now one in seven. Projected to be one in 19 by 2030. Okay, fundamentally changed. Unbelievable. I suggest to you, Jeff, that is the model we're seeing 
and a redesign of the workforce. The role of the teacher changes from disseminating knowledge and information to managing learning. And it leads to a differentiated staffing. And it leads to staff who have a different set of skills than simply knowledge. It, it's the application of knowledge. Uh, it, it's a fundamental shift. So, so much so, going back to one of your earlier points on how important it is for leaders to focus on culture. Because if they focus on culture and create a fertile ground for change, which by the way is a, is a cultural attribute, right? You're either, you can navigate it because you embrace it and accept it as opposed to fight against it. And if they can do that, some of these changes will become more possible and we can maybe potentially turn in a dilemma into an opportunity specific to doing something bigger and better and bolder than we've done for kids in the past. Am I, am I on track in terms of connecting some points you made? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to have help uh, in ways we haven't yet thought about. Uh, again, looking around the corner, I'll make a prediction. Uh, all the major publishing companies are going to merge with the uh, tech companies by 2025. Hmm. Okay, tell us more how that'll help. I mean, I, I have a vision, but from your perspective. The reason it will help is part of the solution is personalizing instruction for kids. Uh, all kids have different interests, learning styles, and aptitudes. They learn at different rates. Yeah. And I'm not opposed to testing, okay? I was in the State Ed Department in New York, ran the testing program for seven years. Not opposed to testing. But what we do with our tests, Jeff, is we measure all the kids on a given day on the same content. I have five children in my own family. There's no way all five of them are at the same place on any given academic day, much less a class of 25 kids or a school building of 700 or a district of 10,000 or a state with millions. Sure. And so it, it's an artificial way that doesn't work, but it, we only do it because it's a 20th century model. What we know is we've got to personalize both assessment and instruction. And we've got to move from a proficiency model measured on a given day for all kids to a growth model for every kid on an ongoing basis. You've got a personalized instruction to do that. You can't do that in a one to 25 model, one teacher, 25 kids. Technology enables us to do that. It changes the role of the teacher from disseminating to managing. Mm -hmm. But, and so what's happening is, we didn't get to talk about technology today, but. I spent about half my time talking about where the advancing technologies are going that enable us to personalize. The tech, the, the tech companies have all that capacity and they made a ton of money during the pandemic and they're investing in education. They have the ability, but what they don't have is the content. Mm -hmm. The publishers have got the content, but I the see. publishers have all been losing money and they can't come up with the hundreds of millions of dollars to bring that advancing technology in. And they got the wrong staffing pattern. They got content people, not technology people. So what we're beginning to see and, and with all the major publishers is, is the movement towards this merger. It, it's going to enable us to personalize instruction for kids. Uh, 
but teachers are going to have to figure out how to do that differently. It's different than what we are trained to do. Okay, so um, it's it's true. Let's let's we could put technology on the shelf for this discussion because we would need hours, as you know. And you know, like I said before, this is one of the things you're really known for is really focusing on what is possible using some technological advances. But let's talk about we talked about the instruction design problem um, coupled with the workforce. Let's talk about assessment for a minute. Um, because this is really key element that you talk about often is that if we're going to change, right, our instructional design problem, we also have an assessment design problem as well. Walk us through um, your perspective on those things. Yeah, uh, you're going to have to change assessment if you're going to change instruction in this country because of, of the power of the assessments. Uh, you, you've got our advice is don't mess with the existing test, but change your report card. Okay. Change your report card to begin to report out, not simply uh, test scores. Uh, and you want to tell me what a 78 is in one classroom versus another? <laughs> or one school versus another? Go to rubrics like the private sector has. And when you begin to look at, and those rubrics should measure not simply knowledge, but the application of knowledge. Okay. And we got rubrics that these districts are developing that are really, really good. Those rubrics also can measure self-leadership skills and interpersonal skills. And you know what, Jeff? We used to do it. We used to do it in kindergarten. Think about when you and I, earlier in our career, think about what the kindergarten teacher taught, what they assessed, and what the report card looked like. The problem is it wasn't done too systematically. That's why you need the rubrics. Mm -hmm. They've got to be well-written. People understand how to use those rubrics because you can't measure these skills with a paper and pencil test uh, or a digital test. It's got to be much more project-based and observation-based over a period of time. And so one of our problems is, however, remember I said you can't change the schools faster than the rate of readiness and trust? Yeah. And I said readiness, we're not there right now in a lot of districts if people are so overwhelmed. We also have a problem with Jeff, sadly, about trust in American education right now. Indeed. Uh, this nation has become politically polarized. Uh, that polarization, we see it somewhat at a federal level and at a state level, but you know what both parties have learned? You really don't have an impact on it. It's got to be local. And where can you have the greatest local impact? In and around schools, i.e. school boards. Yes. So, so we've become so politically polarized and it's caused a lack of trust in the system. That's why I go back to the very first thing I said. First step is culture. Creating a culture that is future focused, but is built on readiness and trust. That takes time. And you said you said from the from the boardroom right to the classroom. Right. And the reason that's so important, Bill, is um, we've talked about this with our with with our members so often is these governance dilemmas and challenges. And I don't want to point another political finger at school boards, but the dilemma that we're experiencing in schools is the time and attention that is hijacked from the very advancements and the ability to focus as visionaries because of 
this political turmoil that happens in boardrooms. And so that concept of boardroom to classroom, that's a cultural issue that needs to be focused on that we constantly need to pay attention to as leaders. It's, um, it's cumbersome. You're so right, Jeff. And, and it's tougher now than it ever has been in the past. So let me, um, to make sure that, you know, we, we honor your time and we're, we're so thankful to, to have this discussion with you. Most of our systems, Bill, with our, with our members are not content driven. This is the one thing we do to provide some pragmatic information perspective to them. Everything else we do is through what we say circles are better than rows. We circle people up. We tap the collective wisdom of the group as opposed to being the sage on the stage. Um, so if you and I were around a table with other leaders, superintendents, assistants, regardless of position, principals, they are a leader. They are a singleton in their system, um, which is, as you know, a lonely place. We're together around a table. What would be kind of your, your last pragmatic brass tacks advice for them based upon this pushing towards the future that you really help us with? Uh, try to bring people together to put a stake in the ground in year 2025 or some other date into the future. Okay. And get them deeply engaged from boardroom to classroom to community. Uh, what do we want our kids to know, do, and be like? And, and, and stay focused. I, I would go back to the McKenzie research because I think it's, it's so well done because it doesn't relate only to the workplace. It works the home and society, and it stays away from all the political landmines we keep stepping in. Uh, and I think what you'll find is, and we are in these 280 districts, we have found we can bring people together. They, they agree. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways we do it is a portrait of a graduate, and then a portrait of an educator, and then a portrait of a school. What, what do you really want it to look like? And then build back from the future rather than forward from the past. And, uh, and for a superintendent, Jeff, and a board, I want to suggest to you we are not future focused. We are forward focused. And let me explain what I mean. Yeah, please. When you go to build a school budget, I bet you they all begin with looking at the existing budget and say, how much more do we need because of obligations we have mm -hmm. to continue what we've got? Uh, when we, if you're a classroom teacher, you look at what really worked well this year, you keep it, what didn't work well, you try to tweak it. What we're always doing is trying to perfect the past. We're forward focused, we're trying to improve. By putting that stake in the ground and saying, what do we really want? Forget what we got in place. Let's dream. What do you want in place in three years or five years? And then you build back from that future. Now, you're always got to deal with that stuff you got. But we had the same school years we had 100 years ago. We got the disciplines in the same silos. In fact, we've created department chair people and curriculum specialists silo by silo. High performing schools aren't doing that anymore. They've gone to interdisciplinary departments. 
math teachers will talk to math teachers. Let's get a team of teachers together to talk interdisciplinary about the kids. Focus on the kids and what you want them to do. In your budgeting process, I bet you you focus on the adults. So this is this is why I'm I'm thankful you came with us today because I, I I'm worried about several things. One, I I worry about um, leaders because I think leaders will be to blame when we go through this political polarizing time and public ed um, is criticized. I don't I don't think we're going to point at teachers. I think we're going to point at leaders, school boards, etc. Um, so now is the time if ever there has been, to take some big and bold risks on behalf of our students in preparing them. In the meantime, we also see this temptation because of, quote, learning loss, as people describe it, on how do we get back to some of those things aligned to the standards and assessments as opposed to let's embrace this challenge and this chaos and start truly building a future that we want, as you described so well. This is exactly why I was hoping to, to have you with us today. I'm, I'm so thankful for your time, Bill. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, and thanks to all the superintendents who join your group because they, you're right, they need to have somebody to talk to. It's the loneliest job in education, the school superintendent. Most people don't think it is. It is today. Yeah, loneliest job in America, I say, for sure. Well, once again, thank you, Bill, and um, and we'll be in touch. And you know, um, you know, my best to all of your work. And know that I have been a fan. Many of us have, and we will continue. So, um, anything we can do to help along, spread your message. That's what we're here for. So, thank you. Great. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Be well, ladies and gentlemen, leaders. That's why. That that's why I wanted you to hear this. We we work so hard to find relevant information and bring it to you in a format that is um, that that is accessible based upon your hectic busy challenging schedules and demands um, if you listen to this live you know what I'm referring to if you listen to this later you'll see um, and for those that listen to our podcast you're definitely in for a treat um, thank you so much for the noble work that you do and I just wish you uh, always the best of luck. We'll do whatever we can to help you focus on the future or build towards uh, tomorrow as opposed to sometimes drowning in the realities of today and the past. Uh, so everyone, ladies and gentlemen, be well.